Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Harry's, The Great Courses Plus, Movement Watches, and our contributors at Patreon.com. It's mid-December, and time for us to return to the wilds of the Himalayan mountain range. In part one of our series on the Yeti, we introduced you to the watershed Shipton footprint photo and gave you the context in which it was found. We talked about the numerous versions of this creature that are familiar to local cultures in the region and shared stories of multiple varied encounters. We told you that the reality of the possibility of the Yeti's existence was even supported by an official dispatch from the U.S. Embassy in Kathmandu and touched on the nature of that part of the world and the people there. Tonight we'll share a few more stories of unusual encounters with the Yeti and take a look at how the creature is perceived locally and even deified by some. Then we'll begin to take apart the myth and start down the path of analysis into just what this creature might be. After all, this story is unusual in the world of the unknown, because in this story, there is a footprint. So there's no question this thing exists, but what is it? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. One does not meet oneself until one catches the reflection from an eye other than human. Lauren Isley from his book, The Unexpected Universe. Join us tonight for part two of our three-part series on the mystery of the Yeti. Ah, you're Jimmy Stewart, I presume. Not a very good one, but well, it, but it, it needs there. more. Yeah. It's in there. There's yeah. a reason we're doing that. Uh, <laughs> folks, thanks so much for joining us again as we go deeper into the wintry topic of the Yeti this holiday season. We'd like to remind everyone that our theme music, by the way, is available as a ringtone for your iPhone or Android device. All profits from the sales of that are going to our extremely talented composer, Judson Crane, who originally donated the track to us when we started out, and if he had it to do over, he probably would have charged us a fortune for it, <laughs> which is the going rate for his work. Mm. You can find the tone in the iTunes store if you select more in the lower right corner of the store app on your iOS device. And then Tones, where you can search for Astonishing Legends. On Android, you can go to the Tunes app. That's with two U's in the middle. I don't know who came up with that brilliant eh, app got, name. you got to have something different. Yeah. yeah. Tunes, uh, <laughs> ringtone store, and you'll find it there as well. And please remember to support our sponsors when you can. We are very fortunate in that our audience has grown to a size where sponsorship income, along with Patreon support, has made Astonishing Legends a viable long-term, full-time job for both of us. And that works because of you guys. I don't think either one of us has ever worked harder at a job than we do on this show, but that's okay because we love it. So in this time of giving and receiving, we'd like to say thank you for coming along on this ride and proving that a podcast like ours is actually a viable business model. 
As long as we have sponsors, the show stays free for everyone, and your support of them has made that possible. Indeed. Thank you very much. As a special holiday gift, stay tuned for a postscript tonight after the closing credits. It was a story we came across while researching the Yeti and was too tangential in nature to include in the body of the show, but too fascinating to cut entirely. So keep listening after our closing theme. Tonight, we're going to start out with uh, three more encounters we really wanted to share with you, and then we're going to discuss the religious beliefs surrounding the Yeti and how that connects to relics associated with it. After that, we're going to take a look at the science that's been applied to those relics and share with you what it has shown, setting you up for part three of the series, our final part, and our interview with Professor Taylor, who spent 60 years on the Yeti's trail and may have solved a major piece of the puzzle. This is a story about something that happened to a couple of Chinese government officials in 1979, and it was published on the Reuters News Service. The byline goes to Anthony Barker, and the article is dated October 6th, 1985, and we wanted to share this with our listeners. Forrest is going to be reading this. I'll read the headline. Chinese officials tell of encountering two yetis. Abominable snowman legend refurbished in Tibet. Zhang Mu, Tibet. Superstitious Tibetan villagers living near Mount Everest have not spotted a yeti or abominable snowman for generations. But Chinese officials believe they have tangled with two in the last 30 years. In 1979, two of my colleagues managed to grab one of them just across the way, trade official Guo Shenbao said in Zhangmu, a bustling town on the Tibet-Nepal border. And during the early 1950s, an army frontier guard mistook one for a prostitute and tried to arrest it, Guo said. No conclusive scientific evidence has proved that the creature exists, but Guo, an educated man who has worked in Tibet for 10 years, says he knows it does. In 1979, he and two other Chinese officials were living in a hillside hut while they did compulsory part-time farm work. Guao had to go home that night, but his two friends were asleep in the flimsy hut when one felt a hand on his face. He thought it was his friend playing a joke and sleepily trying to push the hand away, recounted Guo. Then he realized it was furry. Calling to his friend for help, the official wrestled the hairy, chest-high creature to the ground. They tied it up and then went back to sleep. In the morning, they found it had escaped. How could they have caught such a rare beast and then casually dozed off? Guo is not surprised. We were tired out by the unaccustomed physical labor, and we were used to catching various wild animals like birds, monkeys, and bears. His friends were too exhausted to see the significance of their catch, and only in the morning did they realize it. The two, who have since moved back to China's inner provinces, were sure, even in the gloom, that the beast was not a monkey or a black bear, which it slightly resembled, Guo said. The earlier encounter with the beast, called Yeti among the Nepalese and Migo in Tibet, was in the 1950s when Chinese troops had just begun to patrol Zhangmu, where a spectacular valley descends from the arid Tibetan plateau into the moist, forested hills of Nepal. A guard spotted a figure with long hair walking and crouching as it stealthily approached his post. He assumed it was one of the prostitutes who used to sneak in from Nepal to seek clients among frontier residents, and dropped his rifle to try and arrest it, Guo said. He seized it in the darkness, feeling what seemed to be a fur coat, and dragged it towards the guardhouse. However, it broke away down a steep gorge that no human could have scaled. 
Its footprints, found in the morning, were not those of a human, Guo added. Okay, so you heard it here first, folks, on Astonishing <laughs> Legends. I'm sure everyone's heard all the most famous stories, but I bet a lot of you didn't know that a Yeti was once arrested by someone who thought it was a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, the, and the quote was real fur, so that's a crime there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. But here's something that we have talked about before on the show is they went back to sleep in that first story. This is two anecdotes, right? <laughs> the first anecdote yeah. is they captured it and tied it up. The second one is the one where the guy thought it was a, a prostitute. And right. I think it's so interesting. It was, oh, no, we were dog tired. And I get it. It said compulsory work. I'm sure they weren't there because they wanted to be. Yeah, these guys are probably, uh, you know, they're office officials. They're not yeah. used to uh, ditch digging and whatever they had to do. So they were tuckered out. Yeah. But that happens so often, though, actually more with the paranormal stuff. I mean, I guess this is kind of connected to the paranormal, but maybe more supernatural, where a man with a black hat who is just a shadow and two-dimensional tried to strangle me. And then he left, and then I went back to sleep. Yeah, and then I went back to Dan sleep. Dan has something else to do. <laughs> you, know, that's, you know, we wonder about that, but there's something, I think, if, uh, that goes beyond just the physical. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some kind of a forced sleep of some kind. You know what I'm saying? So that's a different thing. You can't really equate this. But I can see these guys like, yeah, they tied it up. It's like, yeah, he's good. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, he's not going to budge. And then, of course, it's a wily animal and maybe more human-like, and he managed to uh, loose from his bonds. Right, and that's interesting because they didn't necessarily identify the type of creature it was. It doesn't seem like they necessarily thought it was hominoid in nature yeah. because that's not what you would do with a person. You wouldn't tie him up and leave him outside if you related to it in any way as a species, I don't think. Right. But, you know, then we come down to the other story, that was about the prostitute. And so, so, like, not only did he think it was a prostitute, but then it scaled a gorge. So it would have had to have been yeah. a prostitute that was really good at parkour <laughs> well, well, or maybe uh, well, that, bungee that, jumping. Right. That description actually uh, comes up again. And I think in another account we're going to uh, relay in that it gets away or just moves on its own. That's really not trying to get away. It's just the, it's locomotion. It's perambulation. Moves really quickly and adroitly, like very spry. So... Here, it's like, obviously, the thing's kind of bipedal, when he's seeing like, oh, look at that. Okay, well, I got you, ma'am. Like, you're not going to be flying your trade around here. Come with me. Grabs it. It's like, oh, nice for a coat. Kind of dirty, but, uh, you know. (laughs) Right. Then the next thing you know, this thing's like, you know, that realization is like, whoa, this is not a person. (laughs) So, obviously, the second story, he's thinking that it's walking, I guess, and behaving enough like a person that it doesn't occur to him, like, well, that looks like a bear. Right. Because bears do walk on their hind legs. We all have seen the videos, but it's not like a human's walk. It's kind of funny. We're amused by it. But the first one, yeah, that's a great question. It's like they wrestled it, didn't really have much of a description of it. And I think we're just concerned. It's like, man, we got another hard day ahead of us. So we better get some shut eye. Well, and it falls into that category. And it's something that we see over and over with folklore and the way that things develop. And especially when it's a prominent tale, like the tale of the Yeti. A lot of times, I think it's safe to say that things that are just generally unexplained, and maybe this is just unexplained because they were fatigued or tired or or new to the area, it gets attributed to it. It gets lumped into that basket. And there's a point at which you have to decide what really is in the Yeti basket and what isn't. You know, I don't know from this story. But it's still, it's a fascinating story. Now, there's another story that we had wanted to share, and this one is actually in Dr. Taylor's book as well. And this is the story told by a man named Wooldridge. And this happened in March of 1986, not that long ago, Anthony Wooldridge. He had gone on an expedition, and I wanted to read some excerpts from that story. 
As the track followed steep wooded slopes beyond Gengaria, I was surprised around 3,300 meters altitude, which is just shy of 11,000 feet, to come across an area where the snow had recently been disturbed. Strange tracks came up to a steep gully on the right and then went from bush to bush in the wood. I was naturally curious to know what creature could be sharing the wood with me, but could think of no satisfactory explanation. I took two quick photographs of the tracks and pressed on, knowing that time was precious. If I was to reach Himkund before the snow became too soft, perhaps half an hour later, as I was emerging above the tree line, there was a sudden bang, followed by protracted rumbling. And although I could not see any signs of snow movement, my first reaction was to suspect an avalanche. So that, in fact, was an avalanche. So now I'm going to move on to another excerpt from after the avalanche. While studying the track of the debris, I noticed a large, smooth groove in the loose snow, which might have been caused by a large rock sliding down. But the groove came to an abrupt end just at the point where a set of tracks led off across the slope behind and beyond a spindly shrub. Standing behind the shrub was a large, erect shape, perhaps up to two meters tall. Convinced that whatever it was, it would disappear quickly, I took several photos rapidly. It was difficult to restrain my excitement as I came to the realization that the only animal I could think of which remotely resembled this one before me was the Yeti. My skepticism about the creature's existence was overturned by this all-too-real creature then in view. It was standing with its legs apart, apparently looking down the slope with its right shoulder turned towards me. The head was large and squarish, and the whole body appeared to be covered with dark hair, although the upper arm was a slightly lighter color. The creature was amazingly good at remaining motionless, although the bush vibrated once or twice, and when I moved back down to lower ground, it appeared to have changed its head position and to be looking more directly at me. Anthony Woldridge. So that's in his own words. Yes. Now, this story I wanted to share because it actually makes me laugh a little bit. Because some other explorers, this was only just 1986, wasn't that long ago. These other explorers went to the area where Woldridge was to see what he saw. And they found that the object that he took pictures of, the creature that he took pictures of, was still there standing in the exact same position because it was a rock. (laughs) (laughs) That looked... Ape-like, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. And it does. When you look at it, it does look like a big dude standing there. Yeah. And, you know, on top of that, he was like, when I went lower, it seemed to have changed its head to be looking more directly <laughs> right. at me. It's a rock, dude. Well, you And know he admitted that. Right, right. You know. But you know what it sounds like is the ape-like rock that was found on Mars in one of the NASA photos. Yes, Where you look yes. at it, it's like, God, it does look like an ape kind of sitting there. Yeah. You know, in a Rodan uh, thinking position, just kind of like, just crouched down. And you could see where he might think that. But I think it's the case where there's a bunch of different elements, hypoxia. Yeah, and he admitted that he may have been a little bit oxygen-starved sure, at that sure. point. Which is obviously a contributing factor. Right. But he did see tracks. Well, that's you what know. I'm saying is that there's it's one of those cases where there's several elements all coming together, like a pareidolia, that cements it in your mind. You know that yetis are claimed to have been seen in that area, in that region. You saw some tracks. 
here's something that looks pretty close and you're a little oxygen deprived and maybe a little tired. It's like, I think that's a Yeti. Yeah. And he's really good at staying still. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a good story and I think it has to be told because for a while, until they got back up there to check it out, that story circulated widely as a real encounter. And that's something you have to remember is that your mind can play tricks on you, especially when it's not getting all the air it needs. The Yeti conspiracy theorists might say like, well, that's another rock. It's kind of like the face on Mars where you, you know, NASA's saying like, well, no, we took another photo, different time of day, different lighting. And obviously it does not look like a face, but then there's theorists that will say, you're trying to fool us. Right. That's another photo entirely, and you can't fake the first one. So I believe that it's just one of those things where you're kind of hyped up. It triggers in your mind, like, that could be a Yeti. If you were out in the middle of the desert, you wouldn't think, Yeti. If yeah. you saw a rock, it'd be like, that's a dude wearing all black or something. That's a very human-looking kind of rock, but, like, it doesn't, you know what I'm saying? It's like uh, all the conditions were right. Well, I think the biggest part is, you know, I can't blame Waldridge for looking at that, because I've seen the picture of this thing. Yeah, for looking at look that like, thing and thinking like it was a, an upright, right. you know, bipedal creature, yeah. and this is where the hypoxia comes into play, it didn't occur to him after it was being still for so long that it might have been a solid object. Right. That's the hypoxia. You know, yeah. it's, it's like he saw tracks, he saw this thing standing there, looks like it's standing there, but his brain couldn't do the math that if it's being that still for that long, yeah. it might not be an animal. So, right. you know, that's you know. just one of those things that happens. But then, like I said, for the amount of time it took from when he told the story to when they got back up there to find that rock, that was part of Yeti lore. And it still is now, sure. but it's been, the visual aspects of it have obviously been debunked. Right. There is one more story we want to share with you before we start talking about the religious aspects of the Yeti and how those shape the way that it's perceived in the region. This story is a newspaper article from the Richmond Times-Dispatch, September 17, 1986, titled, Yeti, Snowman Stalked But Not Met. The byline goes to Bayless. WMF Bayless wrote this. One day on the 16,000-foot level of the Nanga Parbat, a 26,000-foot mountain in Chitral, we were stalking an ibex above the snow line when we saw a set of new footprints. These were five-toed and about twice the size of a man's. They proceeded up the mountain to 17,000 feet, then to 18,000 and 19,000. Our breath began to get very short, and then the footprints disappeared into a large, dark cave. We were against going into the dark cave to confront an unknown monster bigger than a large bear, so we retired. A little later, we shot an ibex, a goat as large as a pony, that measured 52 inches around the curve of each horn. A decent size, but by no means a record. These horns now are on our sister's house in Ireland. We and our stout path and retainer dragged the carcass down to the 14,000-foot level, just below the snow line, to a Sherpa's, or Mountaineer's hut, where we were staying. The Sherpa licked his lips at the thought of such juicy eating, But he said, we must leave a haunch outside for the snowman. This monster, he said, would undoubtedly sniff out the fresh blood. If we left no offering, he would break in and tear to pieces everything and everybody in the hut. This fearful monster, he said, is the curse of the high mountains. But the few sahibs who do come here surely do as sahibs usually do, as they don't believe in him, as they have never seen him although many huntsmen have. I believe in him, he said stoutly. I found his tracks, and I followed him 
up to 19,000 feet. We left the haunch of Ibex outside the hut, and in the morning, it was gone. The hut was just below the snow line, and there were no footprints. All right, so that's an amazing story that's very interesting to me. There's a lot of things about it that are fascinating. Of course, you don't know what went in the cave. Something definitely came for the portion of the meat that they left out. Sure. It's the Sherpa's point of view that is the most fascinating part of it to me. And uh, again, for those who don't remember from part one, when we talked about the term Sahib is a term for... Sir, master, boss. Right. So, you know, people who come to the region, for example, on hunting trips or hiking trips or expeditions, you know, exploratory for fun travel or trekking or whatever. But he's basically saying, you've got to respect this thing and you need to leave something out there or there's going to be hell to pay for all of us. (laughs) That goes with animals. It's like, it's part of getting along with your environment. You leave something for them. Not so much, again, that it's a so much of a sentient thing. It's like, it's looking for an offering. It's like... This is a wild animal that's hungry. If you appease it a little, it will leave you alone so that everyone may have a share. But, you know, be stingy, carry the bloody carcass into the hut, and it's going to come in after it. Yeah. So, yeah, I see it as a way of just, like, getting along with your environments, getting along with nature, and being respectful. Do you have anybody on your gift list that's really hard to shop for? Oh, yeah, my parents. Of course, as parents, I'm sure they appreciate anything I get for them, but sometimes I'll come home to visit and I'll see something I got them in the past sitting there collecting dust. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. You imagine they'd use it, but turns out you were just imagining that. (laughs) I often make the mistake of thinking, well, that's something I'd use, but forget that they don't have the same needs as me, except when I gave my dad a Harry's razor gift set. I knew I loved Harry's shaving supplies, of course, but I also knew that once he tried it, he'd never go back to those other expensive blades either, just like those three million other guys that have switched. I think that's because, like myself, you and your dad are super picky about your shaving razors, and first and foremost, the blades absolutely must be as sharp as possible for a close, comfortable shave. And if you or a guy you know think so too, we have a tip for you. This holiday, Harry's is offering custom and limited edition shaving sets that make perfect gifts for that discerning guy you know. These gift sets were built with your fella in mind, so you know he'll love them and use them. They come with German-engineered five-blade cartridges that provide a close, comfortable shave, foaming shave gel that smells amazing, and special limited-edition winter chrome and emerald green handles. And you can personalize it with engraving, so it makes for a really thoughtful gift. Their sets come ready to give in beautifully designed gift boxes and start at just $10. They also have great stocking stuffers. And why not get something for yourself from Harry's while you're at it? As a special offer for our fans, we've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off your order when you go to harrys.com legends. Now, this offer is only available for the holidays. This holiday, give Harry's and give Handsome. Shipping cutoffs end this week, so act now to get your gifts delivered in time. To get a limited edition holiday shave set while supplies last, go to harrys.com slash legends right now. That's harrys.com slash legends. This is Dave Powell from 5 Minutes of Mystery, and when I'm not talking about Blue Raja or Mr. Furious, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So we came across this academic paper called The Friendly Yeti, written by Daniel Capper, Ph.D., Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Southern Mississippi. And it's a really interesting take on 
the religious aspects of it, or the spiritual, or the cultural, and I guess you could say the, the part that it plays, the idea of the Yeti in the indigenous people's belief system. And he's not out to prove if it exists or not. His view is different. So I thought that this excerpt from his abstract, which is the paragraph before the paper starts, really, that kind of explains what his motives are, what the direction of the paper is going to be, was kind of interesting. So I'll just read a little setup here that he has. By the way, we have a link to the paper if you want to read it yourself. Yeah, it's scholarly. It's, Translation, it's, dense. It's, it's <laughs> abstruse. <laughs> abstruse. You could I, say yeah, it's my it. new favorite word here. But no, it, it's an interesting take because he says, I'm not here to prove that these people are right or wrong. It's just that we would do ourselves in the Western world a disservice if we didn't take it seriously and consider that as part of the anthropology and the sociology of the area, because it's something to consider, not just dismissive, like, oh, that's an old legend by those silly people. And it says, following a phenomenological approach that sets aside the issue of the ontological existence of yetis, I examine texts, art, ritual, and folklore in order to propose four yeti personal ideal types, the Buddhist practitioner, the human religious ally, the friendly yeti, and the mountain deity yeti. These ideal types enhance earlier scholarship by demonstrating that yetis may appear in friendly as well as dangerous guises, may play religious roles even when they are not venerated, and may embody numinosity even when they are most fearsome. Okay, I have a question for you. Uh, numinosity? Yeah, what is numinosity? Do <laughs> <laughs> you know I was going to ask that? <laughs> because I'm dumb. It's, I guess just imagine it as a supernatural entity that may be beyond comprehension for mortals, some kind of a uh, beneficial idea of something supernatural, some kind of deity. Okay. Again, that's hard to comprehend. So basically what he's saying, I believe here, is that even though they are frightening beasts, they still have kind of a demigod. An aura. Yeah, well, like an aura, but basically a revered presence among the people here, sure. uh, among the Sherpas, in that, yeah, you got to be afraid of it, but it's like, oh, hey, angels can turn into destructive angels, and you've got to respect them because disrespect can bring retribution or like, yeah. a correction, let's say. So what he's saying is that even though they appear fearsome, is that there might be a higher spiritual thing that's not totally understood, but they know that it has a supernatural power to it. Again, it should be feared, but respected and leave it alone. Yeah, you know, I think, honestly, the classification system, it jibes with what Dr. Taylor's book says and a lot of the other stuff that that you read that looks at the bigger picture of right. the Yeti. And it sounds to me like this would be a fascinating paper, although I would have to spend the whole time looking at dictionary.com or yeah. thumbing through the Webster. But I think that that's really fascinating. And that's actually a natural segue to our next section where we were going to talk a little bit about the deification yeah. of the Yeti. And I specifically wanted to talk about its position in earlier religious folklore as it relates to a religion in Tibet that is related to Buddhism, but also different. Practitioners of it believe that it predates Buddhism, Although scholars believe that it emerged concurrently with Buddhism, and right. some see it as a sect of Buddhism. Yeah. So it's not a super well-defined religion, but it's called Bon, B-O-N. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. And what it makes me think about is, like, for instance, in our prior anecdote where the Sherpa said, we need to leave this ibex outside yeah. for this creature. Right. It's an offering. It's yeah. like a sacrifice. Yeah. 
to something that left no tracks. Yes, exactly. If you believe that anecdote. But yeah. part of what they said about the not leaving tracks was right. also they're below the snow line. That's true. So that's true. there wouldn't have been tracks anyway. Well, again, if it's in gravel, if it's in dirt that's loose, right. it's hard to say. But it adds to the supernatural aspect of the creature. Yes. To an experienced local hunter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, so in, and in talking about Bond, we have to explain Bond a little bit because Bond has a whole mythology built around a place known as Omo Lungrings. And Omo Lungrings is thought to be in Stagzig, or northwestern Tibet. It is believed that the founder of Bon, Tampa Shinrab, was born a prince in Omo Lungrings in 16,017 B.C., according to traditional Bonpo reckoning. Wow, that's quite a long time ago. Yes, a very yeah. long time ago. Now, you may have heard of Omo Lungrings by its other name made famous... In 1975, by Three Dog Night, Shambhala. <laughs> and if you haven't yeah. heard that song, it's a great song. Sure. But listen to some of these lyrics. I'm not going to sing. I'm not singing. Thank you. But I will read some of these lyrics. Wash away my troubles, wash away my pain with the rain in Shambhala. Wash away my sorrow, wash away my shame with the rain in Shambhala. So it's And then there's cool. like, ooh, ooh, yeah, 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 ooh, ooh. Yeah, yeah that thanks might be for Yeti, doing that Yeti part. noises. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Anyway, and then there's more to it. Yeah, I have heard the term Shambhala. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this a little bit yeah. more. We've gathered up some information here. It comes from a modern Buddhist scholar, linguist, author, translator, mystic, and initiate of the oldest school of Tibetan Buddhism. His name is John Mirden Reynolds, but his initiated name, which he goes by, is Vajranatha. Wow, very good. He has written an essay that explains something interesting about Bond traditions that may tie in with the Yeti. And I want to give a special thanks to ARC member Quaid Joslin for digging this up. Thanks, Quaid. Yes, thank you very much. And we have a link to the full essay if you want to read it. It's pretty fascinating. There's a lot of information in it. But here's some excerpts from it that uh, help paint the picture of what we're talking about here. Symbolically, Omo Lungrings, or Shambhala, is the spiritual center of our world and an imperishable sacred land that has existed since the beginning of time. Here's the fascinating thing. It is considered an axis mundi, connecting the three planes of existence, heaven, the earth, and the nether regions. Vajranatha describes it as, quote, not only an earthly paradise filled with shining white cities, multi-storied temples and palaces, lush gardens and pleasure groves, but a hidden sanctuary of the gnosis, that holds a precious treasure of greatest price, the supreme secret. This is the precise knowledge of who we really are, whence we have come and whither we go. In mystical terms, it is the secret sanctuary hidden in the heart of every living being, the place of Buddhahood, end quote. Now, he goes on to point out that many Bonpos, which are practitioners of Bon, have gone seeking Omo Lungrings, never to return, having passed through the gates into another world, and that pious Bonpos pray to be reborn in that mysterious land at the center. All this mythology was super interesting to me when I came across this. Yeah. Actually, Forrest, I want you to read this next section, mm -hmm. which talks about what would happen if someone came across Shambhala who wasn't ready to see it. Ooh, okay, here we go. If an explorer, finding himself in a remote region, but lacking this pure vision and the discriminating eye of wisdom, were inadvertently to stumble upon this fabled land, he would only see a dusty, wind-swept, arid plain surrounded by desolate mountains. 
he would behold an unexceptionable barren landscape, not the fragrant rivers and lush gardens and pleasure groves of paradise. Even if were to come across some of the inhabitants of this land, he would see only a few nomads living in a dirty, impoverished encampment, and failing to recognize where he had arrived in reality, he would press on elsewhere and forever miss his mark. Only a Sida or adept would recognize the signs and landmarks. Olmo Lungrings exists in a dimension parallel to our own conventional reality, but for this reason it is no less real. The concealment and invisibility of Olmo Lungrings to ordinary sight is no proof that it does not exist, so argue the Bonpo Lamas. So this is really fascinating to me. What we're describing, what he's describing so effectively, yeah. and I really enjoyed this guy's paper. Or it was pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the, the yeah. level of knowledge. So many people are living such different lives from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's <laughs> like, there are mystical places other than Menchie's down the yeah, street. Yeah, yeah. So. We've talked about this in various, I guess, metaphors and, you know, with various cases that you need the eyes to see. You need the knowledge to the unwashed Count of St. Germain. Yeah. It's like you can have all these secret grimoires and rituals, but to the uninitiated, it's gibberish. You can translate it, but you still need the higher knowledge to make sense of it. So it's only for those that have attained the higher knowledge. And this, you know, it also sounds like Shangri-La, a mystical place that people have been looking for. It also sounds like the Great White Lodge of the Ascended Masters, also supposedly in the Himalayas somewhere. Right. So yes, this is a recurring theme and found a lot in a lot of legends and, and now religions. All right. And so you probably wonder why we're mentioning this. I want to read one other little section here from his essay. From the times of the very beginning of humanity, Omo lung rings where direct communication between heaven and earth has persisted until this very day, has continually been the source of knowledge, guidance, and civilization for the outside world. It is truly the sanctuary and the imperishable sacred land. Just want to throw this out there? The movie Midnight Special? Yes. That's all I'll say. Okay. Go see it. All right. it. The reason that we're bringing up Oma Lungrings or Shambhala has to do with how you get to it. And that's when I want to read this very last portion of this essay from Vajranatha's writings. Access and egress to and from Oma Lungrings may be had via the arrow way that was created by Tanpa Shinrab when he shot an arrow from inside the ring of high, impenetrable mountains. Piercing through this solid wall, the arrow created a tunnel or passageway. But finding this gateway is no easy task, even for adepts, for it is guarded by precipitous gorges and wild mythic beasts stand sentinel at the entrance. The tunnel is totally dark, and it takes a nine full days to traverse its length to the world of light at its end. But there have been those who have succeeded in passing through it into the light. There's an important factoid right there. Yeah. Wild mythic beasts <laughs> right. stand sentinel at the entrance. And the reason that we brought all this information to you about Alma Longrings or Shambhala is because there are many that believe those wild mythic beasts are Yeti. Yeah. So now we're coming to this whole new realm of definition of what this creature is. Right. And it's maybe a physical manifestation of a lot of, you know, yeah, Roman, Etruscan underworld myths that we had talked about before. Yes. Uh, you have to take this long trip through dangerous darkness 
to reach the sacred lands and paradise. There are beasts who guard the entrances. There are guides, perhaps, but it's a long, treacherous journey. You need some kind of guidance or light to shine the way. It's only the smart ones who can outwit the guards and the traps and the tricks can get through. And if you're lucky, maybe back. These beasts are known as the Migo or Mir God. And the definition of what these creatures are is very interesting. One of the scholars that we found in the process of our research for the Yeti is a Czech man named René de Nebeski Wojkowicz. He was born in 1923 and passed away in 1959, but he wrote a well-revered book called Oracles and Demons of Tibet, The Cult and Iconography of the Tibetan Protective Deities, published in 1956. This is from uh, Chapter 18 of Nebeski Wojkowicz's book. This chapter is called Sacrificial Objects and Offerings. This is on page 344, and I wanted to uh, share this little passage with our listeners real quick. Bond works claim that for the performance of certain magic rites, the blood of a mere god who had been killed by a sharp weapon or the blood of a mere god who had been killed by an arrow has to be used. In many cases, the blood, before being applied, has to be mixed with poison or white mustard. So there's a footnote here that explains what the mere god is. Verbatim translates to wild man. This is the so-called snowman of the Himalayan expeditions, known to the Tibetans also as Gangs Mi, glacier man, Mi Sham Po, strong man, and Mi Chin Po, great man, the yeti of the Sherpas, and the Chu Mung, snow goblin, or Hlo Mung, mountain goblin of the Lepkas. We're going to talk about the Lepkas in a little bit. The Lepkas worship this being as the god of hunt and owner of all mountain game. Tibetans and Lepkas describe the snowman as a huge dark brown monkey with an egg-shaped head scantily covered with reddish hair. He is supposed to be about seven feet high when standing erect. The snowman is said to be living in the highest tracks of the mountain forests, which he leaves occasionally to search a salty kind of moss growing on rocks on the moraine fields. When searching this moss, he crosses sometimes, walking erect, snow fields, on which he leaves his characteristic footprints. Similar traces are supposed to be made by a bear known to the Tibetans as Mi Dread. This is the expression met, found in the reports of Himalayan expeditions and wrongly translated as abominable. Native hunters claim that the snowman is a shy, harmless animal, which has nearly become extinct. All right, that's super interesting to me because what's happening now is we're making a connection between the guardians of Shambhala or Omo Lungrings and the Mir gods, which they're also saying are Yeti, and that if you mix their blood with certain things, then certain magical rites can be performed. Sure. And... Additionally, this description, it all ties together. So you're starting to see how this is more than just some unknown creature in the woods to local populations. No, and that's the point we want to make. You might think that this is some kind of huge, weird, you know, mystical tangent, but it isn't to the people that live there. The Westerner looks at it and is wondering, what kind of animal is that? And to them, it's like, well, it's so much more than that that we have a trouble understanding because we don't usually think outside those kind of boxes. To us, it's got to be a bear. It's an ape. It's an ape bear. Just tell us what it is. And to them, it's like, it's really too hard to explain to you. By the way, Forrest, I wanted to tell you about this. There's another case of an incorrectly cited fact. In one of the books that I was looking at earlier today, it has a passage in it that cites 
Renee Nabeski-Wojkowicz's book, which I just read from, as stating that these Yeti live a long time and they know it because a wounded one was seen three generations later walking with the exact same limp. Wow. Hmm. Like I said, as we often find with our research, that that's in another book that is published. Yeah. And that citation points to a certain page in Nabeski-Wojkowicz's book, and that reference isn't on that page. Mm. It doesn't exist there. Damn so. It's just like when we were talking about Kelly Hopkinsville. Yeah, I think it's just yeah. a misplaced citation. Sure, I would sure. love to have found it, just to let our listeners know, we try to track everything down to its first source when we can. So the question really becomes, are these things the guardians of Shambhala? Are the Yeti these mystical creatures? And if so, what does that say about the plane that they exist on? Because it, it begs a new question. Would the Shipton footprint even be connected to this type of creature? Well, that's a good point and something we'll try and make uh, clear later. But this also ties in, I think, with the theories that people have, the more way out theories, of course, with Bigfoot. Why don't you ever see a carcass? Why don't you ever find some Bigfoot scat? Or why do they seem to kind of appear and disappear? Now, that is something that the Sherpa do believe, that they do appear and disappear into thin air. They're not solid creatures. They kind of show up and then they can vanish. And why isn't there more Yeti proof, more hair or teeth or a dead carcass? You know, because obviously, if you're going to have one, there's got to be families. They have to reproduce. They've got to live somewhere. They've got to hunt, eat, find fresh water, all that stuff. But it also, again, ties in with Bigfoot here in the United States. And of course, yeah, that is the way out theory that they're interdimensional in some way. Right. Which goes against the woodland ape people who think that like, well, no, they're just very elusive. We just not seen one yet. And there's nothing too crazy about it. It's just a surviving extant ape, you know, of some kind that lives here in the United States. So, but that's an interesting theory about them being kind of interdimensional creatures protecting an interdimensional place. It just goes to show that when we've pitched that and prior episodes. People have laughed at us. Yeah, people have laughed at us, (laughs) but like when we talked about big feats in the past, (laughs) and when we talked about Bigfoot in the past or other uh, spiritual creatures that seem to come and go, or even the, the way that things seem to be coming and going at Skinwalker Ranch, this is a cultural representation of that that predates, not only predates that idea from the other stories that we've talked about, but it also predates our own, my own anyway, personal knowledge that an idea like this existed in the Himalayan region, which I think is pretty fascinating. Now, if you're a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, you may have heard of the Migo or Migo before, M-I-G-O. He wrote one into one of his stories, and it was different in fiction, but it was clearly inspired by the real Migo of Nepal, as this passage from his work, The Whisperer in the Darkness, shows. No use, either, to point out the even more startlingly similar belief of the Nepalese hill tribes in the dreaded Migo, or abominable snowmen, who lurk hideously amidst the ice and rock pinnacles of the Himalayan summits. When I brought up this evidence, my opponents turned it against me by claiming that it must imply some actual historicity for the ancient tales, that it must argue the real existence of some queer elder earth race driven to hiding after the advent and dominance of mankind which might very conceivably have survived in reduced numbers to relatively recent times, or even to the present. Right, so that's Lovecraft's take. Yeah, yeah. He clearly was inspired by the Yeti, by the Migo, and, right. and was familiar with the original language describing what it was. Right, and so before I forget here, I'll just interject a little thought here that I think that the reason that this captures, this idea captures the Western imagination in a different way than it does the Eastern or... Nepalese 
or Tibetan imagination is that we think of it as some kind of caveman that has survived, some kind of wild man that, uh, against all odds, has made it through, and the fact that if we captured one, here's a real-life caveman of some kind. Yeah. That might be even more grand, bigger, stronger. Right, and it's uh, a big deal yeah. because philosophically, it's a chance for us to look in the mirror. Well, yeah. And that's a very different thing. It's, we already have our heads wrapped around another type of creature, whether it might be a bear or a wolf or whatever. We know what that is. Right. And we even understand primates. Yeah. But you have to admit, when you look at primates, and if you're not somebody that's working with them regularly or whatever, and, yeah. but sometimes you'll see something and you'll think, wow, man, that really is human looking. Yeah. It's facial expressions, everything that's happening there. And I'm not talking about Andy Circus here. I'm talking <laughs> about these actual primates that you might see right. at different places in the world. Now, for most of us in the Western world, it's probably going to be in a zoo, unfortunately. But I think that if this thing represents some kind of wild man living out in the snow and ice, it's yeah. a chance to say, wow, that is that related to us? Could we be that? Could that be us? Well, yeah. You look at any, go to the Museum of Natural History, you see the diorama behind the glass, and it's the caveman mannequins there doing their thing, and it's night at the museum, and it's a comical thought. What if one came to life for a few of them, and they're just going to freak out? Like, how would we deal with them? How would they see us? Would we be aliens to them? You know, that kind of thing. So I think that's part of what we imagine in a way that, Yes, it's primitive to us, but to some of the regional peoples, it's more powerful. It's ancient. It has knowledge of some kind. It's supernatural. So it's not just some stinky caveman that has survived as how we would see it, because we in the West always see ourselves as superior. We think we're the be-all, end-all. Right. Where a lot of the rest of the world believes in uh, something higher than us. So yeah, it's an interesting observation here and a difference. So, last week we were talking about the Decisive Battles of World History series from The Great Courses Plus and how the tiniest element can sometimes trigger an outcome that changes the course of history. And we just watched a really good example of that in the lecture about the Battle of Midway in 1942. Four minutes change everything. I made Scott watch the movie Midway with Charlton Heston. But of course, this course really gives you the whole story. And it's so fascinating. It really is, because it's the battle that turned the war in the Pacific with the Japanese in favor of the U.S. and likely was a decisive factor for winning the entire war for the Allies. And here's the tiny element. The person most responsible for shaping the Battle of Midway was the commander of the Japanese fleet, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. He knew that Japan's expansionist adventurism in the Pacific would eventually lead to conflict with the U.S., and the best way to gain an advantage would be to strike a crippling surprise attack to the U.S.'s Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. Right, and here's the interesting tidbit. Yamamoto was wounded at the Battle of Tsushima in 1905 as a junior ensign, losing two fingers on his left hand. Had he lost another finger, it would have disqualified him from naval service, and the decision to bomb Pearl Harbor may not have been made. So, you could say that the following history of the world was determined by a single finger. And a dive-bombing attack by the U.S. crippled the Japanese carriers and turned the tide of the war in just four minutes. You know, these really are great courses. <laughs> Plus, if you use our special URL, you can start to enjoy these courses as much as we do for a whole month for free. Learn about anything you want, from science, history, and psychology, to learning a new skill like photography or guitar, and watch or listen on any streaming device you own. Start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. 
Hi, I'm Angie Bratzel from Alberta, and I like to listen to astonishing legends while I brave those winter roads. So let's hurry up and get back to the show. In part one of this series, you may remember that we mentioned Sikkim, the Indian state where many Yeti sightings have taken place and tracks have been found. Sikkim is partially sandwiched between Nepal and Bhutan. The famous city of Darjeeling is in Sikkim. And there's a group of people there that we mentioned a few minutes ago known as the Lepka. To them, the Yeti is considered, as we said, the god of the hunt, lord of all the forest beasts. They respect and fear it and have thousands of folkloric tales about it. Notably, their entire hunting ritual is centered around avoiding it at all costs. They believe that it is nocturnal, so they are never out after dark. Dr. Carrie Little, while at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia, published a paper on the Lepka and the Yeti, and we found some of these passages enlightening. Here's a story that she collected from a gentleman known as Loden Lepka. Our ancestor had gone for hunting, and after they killed one deer, they heard a man shouting in the hills. They wondered who he was, and gradually the sound came nearer and nearer, and then stopped. Our ancestor couldn't see him, but heard him crying, shouting, and staying in that one place where the deer had come to. Then our ancestor saw him. This man looked like a yeti, the owner of all the deers and any animal who looks after them. The yeti came down and collected the fern and said some words, like a mantra, and the deer came back to life. The yeti then took the deer away into the hills. Some say our ancestor took note of that mantra. That's why we cut bits off, one part of the hand, foreleg near the hoof, one leg, one part of the ear, maybe tongue. We do this to make an incomplete body so it can't recover. So this goes on to point out that the Lepka believe the Yeti can come and resurrect an animal that was killed in a hunt and bring yeah, it back to life. Yeah. So part of their hunting tradition involves dismemberment to prevent that from happening. Yeah, interesting. I know, it's fascinating, right? Yeah, yeah. Carrie goes on to say, hunters think if they keep a dead animal in the forest overnight, the animal's deity will come and take it back to the forest. Dr. Little's paper is very fascinating. I actually tried to get in touch with her and uh, could not find her. I found mm. her LinkedIn profile, but you have to pay to send people messages oh, on LinkedIn, yes, that's which right. is irritating. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. she's just going to know that I looked at it. Maybe she'll find that we quoted her paper. But here's another little section that I thought was interesting. A Lepka elder from a hunting clan told me that he had been deep into the jungle to places no one knows how to find. And while he had never seen a Yeti, he had heard it. A loud whistle accompanied by shaking ground. Quote, you will run when you hear it, end quote, he said, and confessed that it made him shake with fear. Mm. So th here's yet another culture in the area, in a smaller region, Sikkim, where lots of tracks have been seen. Yeah. And they have their own version of how this creature acts and what to do. And it's a huge component of their very existence, of how right. they acquire food. Yeah, Everything they do is centered around reverence for the Yeti. Right. And making sure that it's pleased and making sure that when they successfully kill something to eat, that the Yeti's not going to come back and bring it back to life and have it hop back into the woods. Yeah, right. It's a little similar to the indigenous peoples who lived near Dyatlov Pass, who said, well, this is kind of a strange mountain here. You have to be very careful. And not that the tourists, as they were called, were being disrespectful, but this is kind of the dead place. And we think it's spooky. 
So yeah, you know, and we're the locals, <laughs> we, and we don't like to yeah. hunt here. Locals only, dude. Right, and, 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 <laughs> and as we've said before, they have their own wild man, the Menk, M E N K. And that's interesting that you should talk about the wild man because that takes us into the Bun Machi again, which I did want to talk about a little bit more. Taylor talks about the Bun Machi a lot in his book, which is the Nepalese wild man. And yeah. we already listed in that part one those other various names. But the Bun Machi is fascinating because it steals your children. Right. It is blamed for eating crops. It's something that Taylor suggests, you know, because of the caste system yeah. that is present in India. Right. That when you're at that bottom caste – you have to have something yourself to look down on. Right. So you need right. that wild man down there at the bottom. Yeah. And when things go wrong with the crops, something eats the crops, when you, the bun manchi came and yeah. it took the corn. And conversely, he intimated that when you're in a higher caste, you also need something to look up to. And at that right. point, this thing becomes deified. Yeah. Kind of it's the bookend Around humanity. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> you know? a good way to put it. So, it's an interesting concept because you're right. If you're an untouchable, well, there's nobody below you that's human. You need another beast. And it also serves the purpose of being mythical and supernatural and uh, has powers. So it's not totally something beneath you could be above you. Yeah, because it's about that relationship that you have with it. And whether it's beneath you or above you, you know what else it could also be is your friend. Well, yes, it could be your friend or it could be your creation and a creation of myth. Because to me, it rings true of a lot of human mythology in our stories and in our creations about archetypes. So it reminded me of the Epic of Gilgamesh, where you have the Sumerian king who's all-powerful. He's a demigod. He rules over his people. He does great works, but he's really a jerk. <laughs> uh, he can be. Your classics professors will tell you that's the archetype of the hero is that they are cruel. They can be mean, and it re represents the human id. So the gods sent a wild man, Enkidu, to defeat Gilgamesh. They created a wild man, and he had to be, of course, tamed. I'm not going to get into how, but uh, yeah. it's sexy. Yeah. So he had to be tamed from his beastly nature where he's covered with hair, he's untrained, he's uncivilized. Once he gets a little human training, he goes up against Gilgamesh because he says, hey, I don't like the way you do things. They get into a fight. Enkidu realizes that Gilgamesh is the stronger competitor. They become fast friends. And so... In a way, you could see it as the civilized man or woman, the human being, coming to terms with their wild nature and being harmonious. And it's also like the noble savage. Think of Frankenstein. It's a creation of human beings. And he didn't ask to be created. You did it for your own simple pleasures. And he runs wild and you can't tame him anymore. So that's you know, the id going crazy. I'm just really yeah, going off the rails like, here. No, but uh, to me, <laughs> I immediately thought of the parallels with artificial intelligence and uh, uh, exactly. all these robots that well, are being built to do our bidding. Well, talking about, uh, I created the Roomba, and it sweeps my floors. It is beneath me. But now the Roomba has AI, and it just launched a bunch of missiles. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's now above you. You know what I'm saying? It's below you. Now it's above you because it got smarter than you. You were with your hubris and, you, you know, thinking that you're the end-all, be-all didn't see that it had other plans for its existence. Yeah. Or it could be nice. AI could be nice. You never know. Maybe it's mad because you keep moving its charging station. <laughs> you took your So it back. decides to trip you in the hallway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, but that's the idea is that these are big themes, perhaps throughout all of humanity and our stories from the time immemorial is that we see our savage selves and we fear it and we also revere it and we're very curious about it. So I think, again, getting back to what I was saying, 
the Western mind thinks of like, wow, is there a surviving caveman? Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. And Sino Man, he just, he gets unfrozen. Yes. Uh, or unfrozen caveman lawyer. It's like, how is he going to behave? <laughs> so, you know, we're the cavemen from uh, the Geico commercial. We're fascinated by this primitive human. Which is flat out stolen from unfrozen caveman I lawyer, know, by the way. I know, Yeah, it was funny for a bit. But, yeah. you know, so that's what I'm saying is that these are not new ideas or strictly just those people who live on the mountain, they believe that. It's like, hey, you know, we've separated ourselves from those ideas, but they're still down deep inside your subconscious. Well, obviously, anytime you have something that's been deified, you have the possibility of relics. And the idea of a relic, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but I did want to share the actual definition of relic. This is from uh, something that's gotten mentioned a few times tonight, dictionary.com in this case. Number one, a surviving memorial of something past. Two, an object having interest by reason of its age or its association with the past or a surviving trace of something. Four, and this is the one that's more pertinent, 4A, remaining parts or fragments. 4B, the remains of a deceased person. And finally, I wanna, I'm going to skip five, but number six, the ecclesiastical definition, especially in the Roman Catholic and Greek churches, the body or part of the body or some personal memorial of a saint, martyr, or other sacred person preserved as worthy of veneration. Uh. So... If you take this and you apply it, and relics, obviously, they've been around since the dawn of every kind of religion there is. Oh, that was one of my more favorite episodes of Millennium, the X-Files spinoff, was yes. the Hand of St. Sebastian. Supposedly, if we found it, could save the world. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I saw Lance Henriksen at the grocery store here across you the street from my house. You did not ask him about that. I I'm didn't. Sure. I, okay. He was looking really hard for something in the freezer, though. <laughs> no, I, I will did. say that. Oof, yeah. <laughs> not a hand, I, I hope. <laughs> but yeah, these things are pieces of the real legend. So that becomes venerable. Well, it's appropriate that you should bring up the hand because the hand and the scalp, when it comes to the Yeti, are the two most famous relics associated with it. There is a scalp that is being held at the Kumjung Monastery that is said to be a Yeti scalp. And you can find pictures of this thing online. It's conically shaped, which matches the description that we read earlier yeah. from uh, one of our prior sources. And so then you have to ask yourself, which comes first? Was it written about because they saw that scalp or right. was that scalp made based on descriptions they had heard? <laughs> Of well, the conical-shaped right. scalp. And or is it just one half of a football? Or is it just half a yeah, football, yeah. which is what it looks like. Right. And we actually have more information on the scalp. We're going to talk about that more in part three. But one thing that we did want to talk about now is the Pangboche hand. Now, yes. those of you that are Yeti enthusiasts, if there is such a thing, have probably heard of the Pangboche hand. It is, I think, probably the most famous Yeti relic in the world. It is uh, now, probably, it, yeah. It certainly is now, and we're not saying that because we're talking about it. We're just saying that, in general, it's been in the news a lot. And mm. there's a few reasons for that. This is the story that we teased at the end of part one as involving Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> right. Yes, that Jimmy Stewart yeah. from It's a Wonderful Life, which everyone's going to be watching yeah. sometime in the next week. And Harvey. Yeah, yeah. and Harvey, yeah. of course. That so, wasn't my Jimmy Stewart impression, by the way. So yeah, It sounded was, like it was an attempt at it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. But yeah, that's the same guy. And for you youngsters, you'll probably see him on the television at Christmas time here because they show Some that channels. Yeah, yes, they run it all the day. States. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just, it's on repeat. Classic actor, World War II hero. As a captain of a World War II bomber, he flew over 25 missions. An incredible guy. Yeah, yeah, and it's the flight experience that actually connected him to somebody that is going to lead him into this story tonight. So right. let's talk about the Pangboche hand and the time that uh, someone gave Jimmy Stewart the finger. 
Wooden dare of it. All right, for, for some of the information that's coming from this, one of the best sources we found was an organization called Trafficking Culture, which has a website, traffickingculture.org. Absolutely fascinating group. I'm going to read their about section from their page. Trafficking Culture is an interdisciplinary research consortium with an overall interest in understanding the illicit trade in cultural objects developing and refining an evidence base for promoting effective policy interventions to reduce this global form of trafficking. Our researchers, based at Glasgow University, Oxford University, and the University of Victoria at Wellington, combine criminological and archaeological expertise and participate in a number of independent but thematically overlapping research projects supported by the rest of the Trafficking Culture Consortium and by other colleagues. Our work is geographically diverse and inherently interdisciplinary. So uh, this is a fascinating group, and the reason that I wanted to cite them is because while the Pangboche hand story is known in various circles, an article on it written by researcher Donna Yates in August of 2013, which you can find on the Trafficking Culture website, and we have a link to it, paints the most informative and concise picture of the bizarre events surrounding this bizarre relic. Listen to Miss Yates' summary of the intriguing story surrounding the Pangboche hand. The Pangboche hand is an alleged Yeti hand stolen from a Nepali monastery. A finger was stolen in 1958 and smuggled by actor James Stewart, and the complete hand was stolen in the early 1990s. All right, Josh Gates actually even did an episode on this mm-hmm. on his show Expedition Unknown, which I love. I yeah. mean, for, I always feel bad for him because I always feel like he's restricted by the television format. Well, like, sure. We yeah. get to keep going on yeah. and on and on. <laughs> Nobody says cut but us. Right. You know, but his show is awesome and he's actually got all the degrees and gets to go all kinds of places, spelunking and diving and yeah. whatever, looking for yeah. everything. He gets out um, there. It's really entertaining. Sure. And he's a super funny guy, too. That's the other thing I like yeah, about yeah. him. But it's well known that the Pangboche Monastery has had this hand for a long time, and that the hand was supposedly that of a yeti. And the monks, or the lamas there, believed that it protected the monastery. So as a relic, and this is the other thing I want to say about relics, and it's part of the the trafficking culture, folks would probably tell you this, the trade in relics is, there's a whole black market thing going on there with private collectors and all that kind of stuff. It's not new to anybody. But in addition to that, The idea of fake relics or relics that have been uh, created that aren't real, which is the same thing as fake, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Has been around a long time. And I confess, I don't have a great deal of background or education in religious history. So what I know about relics, I learned from a historical fiction book called Pillars of the Earth. <laughs> oh, <laughs> which, well, a lot of people like it. Yeah. Oh, which it's an amazing book, yeah. amazing book, Pillars of the Earth. It's by Ken Follett, right. which I used to think his name was Follett, because that's how it's spelled, but yes. it's actually pronounced Follett. And when I was a kid, I used to read spy novels, which he's famous for writing. This book didn't seem like that's what it would be about, but it's mm. it centers around the construction of a church over several generations and several hundred years, and relics come into play, and it was really fascinating to see how that worked, and I'm presuming that he did his research, so since I'm quoting the methodology here, but I guess what I'm saying is there is an idea that relics are faked to generate interest in specific branches of churches or monasteries to have people come by. Well, it brings the faithful and the curious, and usually they leave a donation. Exactly. it, It brings a little bit of money, which they need. They don't have any other means of making a living unless you're brewing beer or doing other kind of craft work or something. So, yeah, it's a way to generate tourism. And do you really need the real hand? 
Yeah. Well, you know the legend of how the monastery started, right? Oh, yeah. According no, I, you know lore. what? I forgot to put that in our outline. It all started with the revered Lama Sangwa Dorji, who brought Buddhism to the region in the 17th century. Now, according to the legend, he flew over the Himalayas and landed on a rock at Pangboche, leaving his footprints in the stone and founding several monasteries. And the monastery at Pangboche is the oldest monastery attributed to either Lama Sangwa Dorji or one of his incarnations, you know, because they believe you can be reincarnated. Sure. Now, that was from the article we were talking about from Donna Yates. Now, what I read in another article was part of that legend is that at some point after founding these monasteries, he wanted to go away and get some solitude, actually just go meditate in a cave and be alone like a lot of monks do. So he goes to a cave, and there are harsh conditions there, but he was befriended by a group of friendly yetis, and they brought him food and fuel and clean water, and they were really nice to him. Well, he's a holy man. But they helped him out with his quest of just being alone and meditating, you know, for the end of his days. And when one died, as a sign of respect, he took its scalp and its hand as kind of a memorial of like, well, we should remember them. They were really nice. Yeah. So that's kind of where the legend starts of where the hand comes from and the scalp. Okay. Yeah, there you go. And in the oldest monastery there, so at Pangboche. So this stuff is back at the monastery. People are coming from far and wide to see it, and the lamas believe that it protects them and protects the monastery. And you can read, by the way, a lot of the finer details of this story at the link to Donna's paper on it from traffickingculture.org. Kind of a wild story. Yeah, it, yeah it really is. But here's the long and short of it. An explorer who was looking for proof of the Yeti back in 1958 learned that the monastery had this hand, and he went there and actually saw it in person. His name was Peter Byrne. And he then went back and told this story to a primatologist, and more importantly, to his patron, the man who was financing the operation, Texas oil heir and millionaire Tom Slick. And Tom Slick has come up, I think, once or twice in the first episode. Yeah. You're going to hear Professor Taylor talking about him in right. part three as well. Slick famously funded expeditions in search of the Yeti some time ago. And on one of those, he had as many as 500 porters on the trip. It's a huge operation. Yeah, well, it's a, again, it's a local employment. So. Right. And so here's where Jimmy Stewart comes into the picture. Jimmy Stewart and Tom Slick were friends with each other. Yeah. Because, you know, oil millionaires and movie stars <laughs> somehow always seem to gravitate to uh, each other's company. Well, you know, look, rich and famous people know other rich people. Even if they're not famous, they travel in those circles. Yes. You know, we don't really, but, no. uh, yeah. <laughs> but if you're Jimmy Stewart at the time, it's like you meet so many other famous rich people. Yeah. Because they have access to you. Well, the other thing is, I think Slick was a pilot. So oh, I guess they go. had that in common, sure. from what I understand. I didn't go deep on that, yeah. uh, verification-wise, but it's my understanding that they were both pilots. Okay. So I guess they spent some time together, and Slick wanted to get his hands on that hand. <laughs> sure. He wanted to prove that the Yeti existed. He was obsessed with it. And they went and made offers, but the llamas were like, no, you can't have it. This protects us. And as we said, it probably yeah. generated income for the monastery. Yeah. Well, you know. and it's sacred to them, sure. Yes, yeah. it's sacred. It's sacred, exactly. And so Yates pointed out in her piece on traffickingculture.org that there are several versions of the story about Slick's quest to acquire the hand. Right. And the craziest one of these suggests that Slick and his two cohorts, not Jimmy yet, we'll get to Jimmy in a minute, hatched a plan to sneak a human finger 
into the monastery, which, by the way, is, I guess, not too far from base camp, where base camp is on the yeah, main route. Actually, yeah, actually, you, you go by Pangboche, or it's right next to one of the main base camps there at the, at the base of Everest. Yeah, yeah, so it's not as remote, I think, as the other one where the scalp is. Um, okay. I believe that one is more remote. But right. anyway, so they're going to take a human finger into the monastery, gain access to the Yeti hand, take a Yeti finger off the hand, and put the human finger on it so that they'll be none the wiser. <laughs> sure. Because I'm sure it looks just like the Yeti well, hand. I mean, yeah. it's just crazy. There's other versions of this story, apparently, where Peter Byrne says the llamas agreed to swap the finger, and still others that say that they brought some scotch and got them too drunk to care about it, and they simply gave it to them. Yeah, that could happen too. So by whatever means, they got this Yeti finger, and now they had to get it out of the country. There's only one problem with that. Yeah. Customs. Sure. It looks like a severed human yeah. mummified finger. You're stealing a relic. And well, I mean, yeah, it probably no, no, looks like it's a big deal. Right. Nobody's going to pass that off. It's yeah. like, oh, it's just a couple of pieces of almond roca in the bottom of my suitcase. Right. You know, it's, and like, they, it's very suspicious looking. You know, Pulp Fiction hadn't come out yet, so they couldn't figure out how to smuggle it. And, uh, <laughs> oh, and, oh. Uh, <laughs> Let's, I'm going to leave that one for the okay. imagination. Right. So anyway, apparently Tom Slick figures that he can get his buddy Jimmy Stewart and his wife Gloria to go to Calcutta, or maybe they were going anyway, get the finger in a clandestine rendezvous and smuggle it out of the country because a world-famous movie star is going to have a lot less trouble at customs. Oh, back then, sure. Yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you got the finger? Well, let me see it. <laughs> It was awful. No, was I true. loved it. Um, Peter, Peter Byrne reports that Jimmy's wife, Gloria Stewart, hid the finger in her lingerie case, and they smuggled it out of Calcutta into Heathrow. Yeah. Um, so they got that finger out of there. They well, got the finger out of there. seriously, though, because like I said, if somebody just goes through the lingerie case, yes. it's like, it's kind of hard to explain. It's yeah. Like, I, I think that fell in there. It's like, it's a finger. It's it's mummified. That doesn't happen by accident. Or it's some kind of relic. You know what I'm saying? It's like, there's, well, there's I know. there are going to be questions. That's my point. Well, and if they start going for her lingerie case, Jimmy's just going to be like, oh, I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> right? That's pretty good. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, uh, well, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a touch of... Uh, Have uh, a little uh, respect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can see why he's got such great appeal even today. Jimmy Stewart, that is. Yeah. But Everybody the, needs to watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's, yes. I guarantee right. it's on right now. By the time this show drops, it's on some channel somewhere. That there, and A Miracle on 34th Street. There you go. But the movie Harvey, I, now I haven't seen the whole thing in a very long time, but you know the idea is that there is a mythical with six-foot rabbit that's his friend that nobody believes him. And I would make this point later is that to him, it doesn't matter because it's so much more than producing a giant talking six-foot rabbit. Yeah. To Jimmy Stewart, to his character. Yeah. And it's mythical and reality coming up against the Western sense of reason. But here, so this is kind of a wild story in that you you have a major Hollywood actor stealing a relic you know, and back then, again, people thought a little differently. Now it'd be, geez, you'd be all over TMZ and your career would be ruined. Yeah. But back then, it's like, eh, you know. I mean, the idea was that it was going to be studied. That was the purpose of it, is that, okay, we need to get that out of there because we'd like to solve the mystery of the Yeti. Well, and the other thing that was going on at the time, pretty prominently, was this whole idea of the missing link. 
Yeah, that's exactly. That, that's when it was really popular, right? Yeah, there was a fervor. And, and for those of you who are too young to know what that was about, but it basically was this extrapolation from Darwin's theories that said, well, you know, if we are descended from monkeys, there's got to be something in the middle. And it's obviously way more complex than that. And it took way longer than that if when you look at the theory of evolution. But at that time, people were looking for the basically a creature that was half monkey, half man. Yeah, and well, that's so the thing. Yeti was it. These guys are going to be famous. Tom Slick's going to be famous. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. going to be amazing. Exactly, because, again, you're talking about the leap from modern humans past the Neanderthals to the more primitive skulls found, and there is a big chunk of lineage, you could say, in the evolutionary gap there. That's what the missing link is. Yeah. And I'm so, probably totally wrong about that, but that's well, just go, I'm going with it. Yeah, don't look it yeah, up. You're right. So <laughs> anyway, after that, the finger disappears yes. for a long time. And Taylor actually talks about this in his book, a Yeti, The Ecology of a Mystery. The idea of why Tom Slick wasn't more forthcoming with the test results he may have gotten, because he did successfully get the finger. Yeah, so, yeah, right. Jimmy Stewart gave him the finger, I guess, after the <laughs> finger was given to Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> That's true. Just um, passing it along. But <laughs> in 1991, part of the finger turned up again, and one of the shows that was our inspiration to start this podcast, Unsolved Mysteries, tested it. And at the time, they determined nothing. They determined yeah. that the finger was similar to human tissue, yes. but not human exactly, only, quote, near human. Right, right. Which is... Um, Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Well, Definitely not Blade Runner, more human than human. No, um, but the point being is that I don't know if they had all the DNA testing available to them no, at that point. At the time, the technology was right. much less sophisticated exactly. than it is now. But here's the sad part. Once it went on to Unsolved Mysteries, it really got out into the open world, and probably somebody on the black market got fascinated with it. Yeah. So the entire hand, the whole thing, was stolen from the Pangboche Monastery, right? where it is believed that it went into a private collection on the black market. Now, keeping in mind that that hand definitely had a human finger attached to it. Yeah, uh, at some point, th sure. The missing finger having been previously stolen and smuggled out of the country in Jimmy Stewart's wife's lingerie case. I do want to read this excerpt from Yates's article at traffickingculture.org. In 1975, the poorly cataloged specimen collection of Dr. Hill was bequeathed to the Royal College of Surgeons Hunterian Museum. Dr. Hill, who we haven't mentioned by name up until this point, was involved in Tom Slick's original search and was part of the team that acquired the finger originally. So that's who he is. In 2008, a box in Dr. Hill's collection was found to contain a nine centimeter long finger fragment labeled as having come from a Yeti hand in the Pangboche Monastery. In 2011, the finger remains were subjected to DNA testing. So this is much more recent. By Dr. Rob Ogden, the genetic expert at Edinburgh Zoo. The bones were determined to be human, according to the BBC, Dr. Rob Jones of the Zoological Society of Scotland stated that the DNA sequence from the finger was a, quote, very strong match to a number of existing human sequences from China and that region of Asia, end quote. This sample remains in the possession of the Royal College of Surgeons Hunterian Museum in London. Mike Alsop has stated that the monastery would like to have the finger returned. And we're going to tell you who uh, Mike Alsop here is right now. But I, what I wanted to say here was, Genetically, if that finger came from the hand, the hand has now been identified with more modern techniques as plausibly being human. Right. But there's a little bit more to that, and I want to cover that in a second. But the closing point on this entire freaking Yeti hand is missing thing is now that Peter Burns stole and Gloria Stewart, Jimmy's wife, smuggled out 
and then it was tested in 2011, found to be human. That is if we can be sure that the finger from that one was the original Yeti hand finger from the monastery and not some kind of mix-up where Jimmy and Gloria wound up just smuggling out the stand-in finger they'd hoped to swap for the Yeti finger. Are you following all this? This is like every action plot. <laughs> right. This is like every action movie plot yeah. ever. Who's got the real one? Um, no, I switched it. Um, yeah. So anyway, I switched. No, okay, you do it. I switched it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. That's a good one. I like it. I've got the real one right here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit of Sean Connery. Yeah, there, but I've I love got it. the real one right here. Very nice. Um, anyway, yeah, he passed it off to Sean Connery. But uh, the closing point is that a climber from New Zealand, Mike Alsop, who we just mentioned, felt so bad for the monastery losing their relic that he contacted the special effects company in New Zealand that did all the work for Lord of the Rings and asked them to make a new Yeti hand so the monastery's meager income from visitors could at least be somewhat restored. You can't make this stuff up, folks. That's pretty cool, though. It's W-E-T-A, Weta? Yes, Weta, yes. Yeah, Yeah, they're amazing. Well, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings films, yeah, yeah, they're pretty amazing, but they recreated one. Listen to this final paragraph from Yates' article at Trafficking Culture. Alsop maintains a website called Return the Hand, which seeks to raise awareness about the theft of the Pangboche hand. He hopes that, through the website, he can reach out to anyone who may have the original artifacts or has the knowledge of their whereabouts. He asks if they could find it in their hearts to return these original artifacts, the small village of Pangboche would be forever grateful. Lama Gersh had a stroke in September 2010 and is slowly recovering in Kathmandu. I know he would be very happy if they were returned to their rightful home. Alsop offers to pick up and collect the hand anywhere in the world and return it to Pangboche. No questions asked. Anyway, it looks to us, it's been a few years, like the Return the Hand website is down. But you know what isn't down? Their Twitter. But they haven't tweeted since 2011. Well, let's get on this. Let's get people uh, out searching for that finger. Yeah, for the finger, for the hand, whatever we got. It can't hurt to throw them a follow and get the word out on behalf of the Pangboche Monastery. Follow on Twitter, Return the Hand. They've only got 62 followers right now. They're not tweeting a lot. They haven't tweeted in seven years. But... (laughs) Right. Let's follow them. Why not? Maybe yeah. we'll get their attention. Well, at uh, least you didn't say throw them a bone. Yes. Okay. Oh. Yes. Let's get him. Moving on. Moving uh, on. But the last thing I want to say, I do want to say this. The original Yeti hand belongs to those monks. It does not belong in some rich jerk's private collection. Exactly. One of the most impressive gifts you can give or get is a really nice watch. I mean, for something that comes in such a small package, it really makes a big impression. (laughs) It's like that old saying, dynamite comes in small packages. And a movement watch really is dynamite. They're solidly built, so they have some real heft to them. A mostly plastic watch? Not so much. But a movement watch features classic design and styled minimalism, which means they're not overproduced with a bunch of features the wearer is probably never going to use anyway. Mostly what I want out of a watch is that it must keep accurate time, look nice, and it's got to last. Otherwise, i got no use for it. And movement delivers on all that, which is probably why they've now sold over a million watches in over 160 countries. Well, that, and they deliver real value because Movement has figured out that by selling directly to you, they can cut out the retail middlemen and all that high markup that goes along with it. Just imagine that lucky guy or gal's face lighting up when they open up a box that looks like it has a watch in it that cost four or $500 from some department store. But in reality, Movement watches start at just $95. And at that price, you can afford to give a couple and even get one for yourself as a treat. Why not give your shopping list and your wallet a break this holiday season? 
because movement is making gift giving even easier. Right now, when you go to MVMT.com slash legends, you can buy any watch starting at just $95 and get a free strap, all placed in an elegant gift box ready to give. And shipping is free. They don't like it. Returns are free too, but you won't need that. This watch has a really clean design. Seriously, I get compliments all the time, ever since I put it on. Now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmt.com slash legends. Join the movement. So many of our listeners also love the horror genre, the paranormal, the supernatural and creepy, and spooky things in general, just like we do. Which is why we're excited to tell you all about another great podcast from the Parcast Network called Haunted Places. One thing we've learned is that a haunted place usually just doesn't become haunted because nothing happened there. They almost always have some super fascinating, frightening, mysterious, and real backstory to them. And that's what the Haunted Places podcast delivers. With each episode of Haunted Places, the host takes you on an audio tour of a new haunted location and its haunted history every time. These creepy stories explain how these very real places became the final and forever resting grounds for restless spirits and scary paranormal activity. Yeah, the tone of the show is like a good campfire story, where the host narrates through the spooky legends and weird history of a place, and tales of the supernatural from people who experienced it firsthand. The Haunted Places team of researchers delve into detailed stories of death, neglect, and unresolved fates that linger in the fabrics of these spooky locations. Check out episodes covering the Cecil Hotel, Elisa Lamringabel, La Recoleta Cemetery, and the Birdcage Theater right now. New episodes come out every other Thursday, so subscribe to Haunted Places to hear about topics like the Island of Dolls and many more. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Haunted Places. Again, that's H-A-U-N-T-E-D-P-L-A-C-E-S. Or visit parcast.com slash haunted to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash haunted to listen now. Hi, I'm Paul, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Here's the question, and we talked about this a little bit. What did Unsolved Mysteries test? I mean, suppose it was a fragment of the smuggled finger. Right. But then more was tested from Professor Hill's collection, who was the guy that we said was originally wrapped up with Tom Slick, and that yeah. was found to be human. So, you know, I don't know. The, and, and the guy who originally tested the finger, Dr. George Agagino, had kept a sample of tissue from it in an envelope, and that's what I guess Unsolved Mysteries had access to. It sat in an envelope in a desk for 30 years. Yeah. It's crazy how stuff just lays around. Well, no, there's all kinds of stuff tucked away in all the libraries and file cabinets of the academic world that are always being discovered because somebody finally needs something else and they see, oh my gosh, look at this thing that was sitting here. And it's brought forth. But imagine all the things that we haven't found yet, all the mysteries to the world that are tucked in, you know, Vatican Library, things like that. But here's the bigger question or a bigger question about things being tested and conclusions being made because you can test something and say, well, this is it. This is a dog bone. This is a chicken bone. This is a bear bone. This is bear fur, whatever you have. But even if it's in a monastery that's been there, say, 300 years, how do you know that's the real deal? How do you really know that it actually came from what people claimed or saw or witnessed was a Yeti? You don't. That's the bigger picture here of the story. So we can run DNA samples nowadays, of course, on all these uh, bits that we find 
but we don't know the provenance of them. You know what I'm saying? There's no story of like a thousand people saw a Yeti in the town square. It left some evidence, let's say, you know, <laughs> and uh, it, it had you know, nature called. Fecal? Yeah, whatever it is. That's what I'm saying. Uh, people so what saw you're this. saying is a Yeti took a dump in the town square. A thousand people saw it happen. And they analyzed it. Yes. And they said, well, we all think that this is a Yeti because it wasn't a bear, wasn't an orangutan. It wasn't an ape. It was something totally different because it looked human, but it was really hairy, walked on two feet, and seemed to be very intelligent and was slightly embarrassed, maybe. <laughs> but but we all decided that that's got to be a Yeti because that's part of our, our folklore, and we have that tested, and we realized, like, well... Gee, most of the human sequence is here for DNA, but not totally. I know that it differs very slightly in the sequence between even us and like chimps and apes, but you know what I'm saying is that we don't have any evidence, really, it's anecdotal. And these scientific reports will tell you as we're about to see here. Here's something about the scalp that I think people should know that's at the Kumjung Monastery. Yes. And I read this in, in Dr. Taylor's book. It was tested yeah. and it was found to be goat butt. Yeah, it was, it was, it's <laughs> goat hide I've, off the rump. Yeah, I yeah, think. and, and it's, a, yeah. it's a specific Himalayan goat called the Soro or Sero. It's, yeah, it's S E R O W. I'm sorry, I'm not sure which syllable gets the accent there. Right, but it's a, you can look it up. It's a cute little guy. Yeah, but what they're saying is that someone took one of those and used the hide from its butt and made it into a cone shaped head, and that's what the Yeti scalp is in that case. However, okay. yeah, that doesn't change the fact. That it's a relic in a monastery. True. Um, and for that monastery, it's a Yeti scalp. Just, you know, we're looking at the bigger picture here. Exactly. Like I said, it doesn't matter what the thing is. If that's part of your belief system, other people might think it's silly. But to them, they're serious about it. And it has some meaning. So it should be returned. Now, some bits have recently been analyzed as early as 2013, 2014, and it kind of made a little bit of news. Now, National Geographic, in an article interviewing Professor Daniel C. Taylor, asked him. It was kind of a Q&A kind of thing where questions Our Dr. Were Taylor, yes, who exactly. we're going to be talking to in part three. Exactly. So the question is, DNA analysis became a powerful new tool in the search for the Yeti. Tell us about the tests done by Brian Sykes at Oxford University in England and what new light they shed on the mystery. And Taylor's answer was, they created a lot of confusion. A professor from Oxford makes a global call for all Yeti artifacts, hair, fingernails, bones, fragments, and he gets many, many artifacts, mostly bits of bear or sheep. And then he does DNA analysis and finds that two appear to be bear-like, but can't be explained by any known animal. The closest DNA connection is the polar bear, but with mysterious DNA sequences. So after he publishes his research, the Yeti myth gets reactivated worldwide. A couple of doctoral students then decide to check his DNA sequencing. They show that he made a mistake and that rather than proposing a new animal, it is the incomplete sequence of a known animal. Once again, we come back to the bear. Okay. So that's Dr. Taylor's summation of, it was a bit of a flap because you make a call, a bunch of stuff comes in from all over the world. Again, you don't know where, you don't know who sent it. Well, I mean, I guess you know who sent it, but you don't know where they got it. You right. Don't, again, it's all about provenance. You don't know where the stuff It has stuff no comes. value, really. Well, it's bits of stuff. It's all yeah. mummified things, probably from the region. So there's kind of a, a couple of good articles here that kind of explain it. There are some papers that were published and rebuttal papers as well, and we'll have links. But a good summation was done by Stephen McKenzie for BBC Scotland Highlands and Islands. He's a reporter for the BBC, in an article that came out December 17, 2014, and he kind of sums up what happened. But basically, Professor Brian Sykes from Oxford, as we said, this would be last year, it says in the article, so maybe 2013, 
revealed the results of DNA tests on hares said to be from the abominable snowman. That's the Western term there, of course, that we all know. The test matched the samples with the DNA of an ancient polar bear. I think Pleistocene. So we're talking like, what, 11,500, 11,700 years ago. We would know it as Ice Age bear. So that's kind of weird. It's what the samples are showing is that, well, it's from a polar bear. We know that. But an ancient Ice Age polar bear. So that's what Dr. Taylor is saying. It's like, it creates a lot of confusion. Like, what? An extinct ancient polar bear from almost 12,000 years ago? What's going on here? That's at a minimum. That's the end of that period, by the way. Yes. It was like two and a half million to 12,000. That's what I'm saying. The the earliest it would be would be around 11,700 to 12,000 years ago. Right. And it's like mastodons and saber-toothed tigers running around. So a couple of other scientists named Sirdewen Edwards and Ross Barnett actually went through and retested the samples, and they got a different result because they said reanalysis of the same data showed the hares belong to the Himalayan bear, a subspecies of the brown bear. Well, there you go. So I think what well, now happened, it's really mundane. <laughs> Upon further analysis, kind of that's the way it went. Now, what happened, I believe, is that, or what they were saying, is that there was either sample degradation or Professor Sykes didn't take it from a, a large enough data set. Yes. So... You know, and he admits that that was kind of a mistake or it was overlooked because they conducted the tests on hair from two unidentified animals, one from Ladakh in northern India on the west of the Himalayas and the other from Bhutan, 800 miles away, further east. So they compared the genomes of other animals stored in a database with all published DNA sequences. And that's when they said it had a 100% match with a sample from an ancient polar bear. The Sykes team. Okay. From a bear jawbone found in Svalbard, Norway, that dates back to between 40,000 and 120,000 years ago. So, again, that's the false result on that. And as these two other scientists came through, they said, well, we don't think so. Right. So what we have is after these counter results kind of, or the reanalysis is published, you know, you have to make a statement. So Professor Sykes and the other members of the team behind the earlier Yeti hairs analysis, and I'm reading from this article from BBC Scotland, they have acknowledged that there was an error caused by an incomplete search of the DNA database used. However, they said in a statement, quote, importantly for the thrust of the paper as a whole, the conclusion that these Himalayan Yeti samples were certainly not from a hitherto unknown primate is unaffected. So that's their kind of summation. like, yes, it's a little off, it's a little wrong, but it's not from some man beast. Right. That's their point, because that's the answer that at least the Western world wants to hear. Is it a man beast? Is it not a man beast? Well, you know what fascinates me about this is it's kind of like uh, Dr. Taylor says, and we'll be talking about this in part three as we wrap up part two here. His search for scientific proof or verifiable scientific proof was particularly painstaking because he would go and see these curators at these museums, these bear experts. He was gathering skulls from all over the region, and he was on the path of trying to figure out what was happening. And we talk a lot about his book and sort of the end result of the conclusions he came to, but not the entire journey. So I would say that it's it's not really a spoiler because the book really needs the journey is what the book is about. But he would go and he would gather up these skulls and say, I, I think this one might be leaving this footprint and this one might be leaving that footprint. And he would go into the museum and say, this is bear A and bear B. Is one of these a new species? And they would say, well, I don't know. It's just two skulls. 
Yeah. One's smaller, one's bigger. <laughs> right. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You got to bring more. We need more evidence. We need <laughs> right. pause. We need all kinds of stuff. And so he was on this journey. He had to make all these expeditions. He's going and trying to buy stuff from the locals and, and bring proof of the remains of some kind of creature that might have created the Shipton footprint. And that is what we're going to be talking about in part three of our series uh, next week. <laughs> That's going to wrap up part two of our in-depth series on the Yeti. We'll be back next week with the final part, part three, and an interview with the author of Yeti, The Ecology of a Mystery, Professor Daniel C. Taylor. As always, special thanks again to The Ark, who did an outstanding job researching this series. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Dave Palace. Hi, I'm Angie Bronsell. Hi, I'm Paul Dalton. And I give permission to astonish you. I give my permission to astonish you. And I give permission to astonish Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Hello, legenders. Let's see who stuck around after the closing credits for our bonus story. It's the first one we've ever done like this. It's just me. Forrest has already left town to visit his family somewhere that is not in Los Angeles. And I just wanted to share a story that we came across while we were researching the Yeti series. This was a fascinating story that we almost baked into the show, but it just would have been too long of a tangent, and it's really not related to the Yeti at all. But I was really enthralled by it. So I wanted to share it with our listeners. It's something I'd heard about before, but I had kind of forgotten about, and the details of it are very interesting. It's about who got to the top, who summited Mount Everest first. And we talked about this in the series. History teaches us that Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay Sherpa were the first to summit Mount Everest. But it turns out there's a controversy there. We found an article in The Telegraph by Paul Chapman from May 19, 2010, that covers some of that controversy. Apparently, a Brit named Andrew Sandy Irvine was supposed to have attempted to summit Everest in 1924, 30 years before Sir Edmund Hillary and Norgay. But no one knows if he made it because he and his partner, George Mallory, died on the expedition. However, before their death, they had been sighted just a few hundred meters from the top. In 1991, a 1924 oxygen cylinder was found at 27,820 feet, just 60 meters below what they call the first step. It's thought to be proof they made it at least that high. Now, the first step is the first of three steps that are up near the summit, and they're known as the three steps. Here's a quote from the Wikipedia page on them. The first step consists of large boulders that pose a serious obstacle. Many mountaineers have died on the first step, among them green boots, in quotes. 
a corpse wearing neon green climbing boots and a red coat, which serves as a somber landmark for climbers to gauge their distance to the top. There are three steps near the summit, the third step being the last one, which is at 28,580 feet. So that tells you how high up they were. The oxygen cylinder from 1924 was found at 27,820 feet, which is 60 meters below the first step. The third step is at 28,580 feet. So there's not a lot of range between these, but the climbing is ridiculously hard. And with regard to green boots, I guess his corpse has been tentatively identified. But what's interesting about Mount Everest, and you learn this when you read Into Thin Air, the book that I mentioned in the series, John Krakauer's book about the uh, expedition in 96, I believe it was, there's dead bodies all over the mountain. When people fall, they stay there. And the bodies a lot of times freeze, and it's a perfect form of mummification. So there's bodies that have famous associations with them, like green boots. And in some cases, people don't even know who the bodies are. They become landmarks in a way, which is creepy. So in 1999, they actually found George Mallory's body, who was the partner of Sandy Irvine. One of the interesting things about Mallory was that he said he was going to leave a picture of his wife, Ruth, at the summit. And when they found his body, Ruth's picture was missing from his pockets. It wasn't hard to check for because Mallory famously wore a frickin' three-piece suit for the ascent. That's pretty cool. These guys are hardcore. Additionally, his goggles were in his pocket, which would suggest he was descending in fading light when he fell to his death, which again suggests that he might have summited. And it was particularly gruesome, his fall. I guess he was, I can't remember the distance, but it was a good ways down maybe 100 meters from where they thought he might have fallen. And there was a hole in the center of his skull that they surmised might have been where his ice pick rebounded into his head as he was falling and killed him. Here's the thing. They have not found Sandy Irvine's body. And Irvine had a camera with him. And the film, according to Kodak, I believe it was, would likely be intact. If they found Irvine's body and the camera and there were images of him and Mallory at the summit, then they would usurp Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay as the first to reach it. With all due respect to them, by the way. I have tremendous respect for both of them. I'm not trying to malign them. They are very revered in the mountain climbing community, as well they should be. This is just a fascinating story. And to that point, Sir Edmund made a very valid observation about all this before he died in 2008, saying, quote, I do not know whether Mallory and Irvine reached the summit. What I do know is that Tenzing Norgay and I were the first to get to the top and back down to the bottom again. Thanks for sticking with us. We'll see you next week for part three, the final part of our series on the Yeti and our last show of 2017. Happy holidays. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. 
Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 